Hey there, welcome to Pickled Parables. This podcast is presented by Parable Ministries as a Bible teaching resource. Thank you for joining us. Pickled Parables is a podcast about taking in and living out the Bible. Here we will study, contemplate, and testify to the Bible's incredible teachings and how it leads us to live better lives. To stay up to date with all things Parable, follow us on Instagram at parable underscore ministries and visit our website at parableministries.com. We hope today's message finds you well. During Israel's enslavement to Egypt in the Old Testament, God heard their cry. God saw the state of injustice and God acted on their behalf. One of the ten specific actions that God administered was the pronouncement of death upon Pharaoh's firstborn son and subsequently every firstborn son who was not covered by the blood of the Passover lamb. As John the Baptist declared about Jesus, Behold, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. As John declared this revelation and then bore testimony of God's Spirit falling upon this man, he was calling to mind the remembrance of God's salvation. This Lamb of God was to be God's provision for the world. Jesus was a divine response to moral failure. He was a response to injustice. Jesus was proclaimed as the Lamb, calling to mind God's salvation of Israel from their enslavement to the Egyptians. But here, this Lamb would take away the sin of the world, the enslavement of mankind. Among the synoptic Gospels, Jesus is shown to have left this moment of recognition and entered into a time of trial. That period of time is often referred to as the temptation of Jesus. He went out into the wilderness, fasted for many days, and in a weakened state encountered a spiritual adversary. After this epic, he returned and recruited his first disciples by going to Galilee. In the Gospel of John, this temptation of Jesus is never mentioned. Instead, his apparent return is described as the next day. Now, if you want to be specific about it, the temptation of Jesus took place over the course of 40 days. It's a little bit longer than the next day. So it's clear that here in the Gospel of John, the author is more interested in telling a narrative rather than in sharing a chronological account of Jesus' life. In fact, each of the Gospel authors employ this method because they want to emphasize something specific about Jesus. I won't go into great detail about this because I, I think I remember talking about this in one of our earlier lessons. But based on who the Gospels were written for, the the audience or the, the recipients who received these books, 
It determined what the authors wanted to emphasize and communicate. Quickly, I'll, I'll note here that the Gospel of Matthew seems to have been written for a more Jewish population. The Gospel of Mark is more so for the Romans. The Gospel of Luke is addressed to a specific person, or at least a household. And as we've previously explored, the Gospel of John was written to both Greeks and Jews, possibly Jews who leaned more towards the Hellenistic side of culture. However, John himself, the the author, is very Jewish in the way he writes. It's clear by just reading his work that he grew up with and learned Hebrew literature well. So with Johannine literature, you get lots of imagery. You get lots of patterns and numbers, everything that you would expect to find within the Old Testament. But remember, he's writing to Greeks and Hellenistic Jews. And so he's making this specific style of writing, which is very detailed and layered, accessible for people who didn't grow up with it, who aren't very intimately familiar with it. And we've seen lots of examples of that just in this first chapter here, such as his word choice of logos. Instead of using the Hebrew term Messiah, he often uses the Greek term Christ. He explains what the Hebrew word rabbi means, and he translates Hebrew or Aramaic names into their Greek counterparts. Because of this, I think that Johannine literature is the ideal entry point for Western Christians who are typically more influenced by Greek culture than by Hebrew culture to learn the nuances and layered structure of ancient Hebrew literature. That's one of my reasons for going through the book of John with you, because by observing the way John tells a story or by his attention to detail, we can take what we've seen here and go back to the Old Testament with it and read that with better understanding. All that to say, John wanted the people who read his book to believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. That's his purpose. That's what he wants to emphasize. So his opening introduction mirrors the chiastic structure of Genesis chapter 1, and he lays out the outline of the proceeding story that immediately comes after it. He says in his prologue, There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. We have four people groups of people mentioned here. John the witness is presented in verse 19 as John the Baptist. 
we have those who do not receive the light, who are also presented in verse 19 as the opposers who come to question John. We have the light that has come into the world, proclaimed in verse 29 as Jesus, the Lamb of God. And we weren't able to get to this in the last lesson, but the fourth group, those who receive the light, are presented in verses 35 through 51. That's what we'll look at today. These examples in the first chapter are not the complete fulfillment of the prologue's layout, but it certainly follows a pattern. And speaking of patterns, numbers and counting are an important part of Hebrew literature. Notice at the transition from introduction to story in verse 19 that it's treated like it's the first day. This is the testimony of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? It's the first day of the story. This is the beginning. Then at each pivot point, the story is broken up by the phrase, the next day. For instance, in verse 29, it says, The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. And then in verse 35, The next day again, John was standing with two of his disciples. Finally, the phrase repeats for the last time in verse 43. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, follow me. If we were to count these days, we would come up with the number four. Now, notice the introduction of John chapter 2. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee. Seems like we're counting something. Four days and then three days. If you were to add those numbers together, you'd get the number seven which holds a symbolic value from the Old Testament. The Lord created the world in seven days, and after that, the number seven always just has a special meaning. So in our next lesson, we're going to look at why Jesus celebrating a wedding on the seventh day is such an important detail. But for our interest in this lesson, we're going to look at why the counting paused at four. The title for this lesson is called, What Are You Seeking? And we should keep in mind the prologue's outline of those who rejected the light and those who received the light. The proclamation of Jesus being the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world is an important stepping stone for us to step up onto as we begin our Bible reading and our textual observations. So let's pick up where we left off in the last lesson. John chapter 1, verse 35. The next day again, John was standing with two of his disciples. And he looked at Jesus as he walked by, and he said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, Come and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, 
And they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. (laughs) John the Baptist was a man who knew his priorities. He preached in such a way that he lost followers. His own disciples, who had submitted themselves under his teachings, left him as they were introduced to the Lamb of God and followed Jesus. What a commendable attitude. We also should have our priorities straight. Are we leading or encouraging or even building up people with the idea that they will stay and support us? Or are we working as servants who point people to the Lord? Later in John chapter 3, this question is brought up by a bystander as Jesus leads a baptism across from John. A discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across Jordan, to whom you bore witness, look, he's baptizing, and all are going to him. John answered, A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. This attitude is one that we should certainly replicate. We should have joy at the increase of Christ, at the expense of the decrease of self. That should bring about joy. As these two specific disciples leave John, and start to follow Jesus, Jesus turns around and asks what might be the most important question these men have ever been asked. What are you seeking? By following me, what do you expect to find? What do you want? We can tell based off of how they addressed him what they were expecting, at least in the immediate sense. Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? These men wanted to be disciples. They wanted to learn. Jesus said to them, come and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. John mentions the time of the day about four times in his gospel, and there is debate about whether he's using the Jewish method of timekeeping or the Roman. I'm I'm undecided in this debate. I'm going to keep my my thoughts to myself for this. But I'll mention some Bible translations will put in or insert their view into the text in an effort to make the text a little easier to read. Translations like the NLT or the CSB prefer the Jewish method of timekeeping, and they they simplify it by saying it was about four o'clock in the afternoon instead of saying something like it was the tenth hour. 
Uh, even in my ESV translation, I have a footnote at the bottom of the page saying that is about 4 p.m. So it's something to be aware of. It's, it's not a big deal. It, it, it kind of becomes more of a big deal later in the gospel, but that's, that's not something we need to worry about for right now. This is just something for you to be aware of. After the two disciples stayed with Jesus for a night, we find that in the next day, one of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. First, notice the author's effort to keep the Greeks on the same page. He's explaining what all these Hebrew words mean, and he's keeping them up to date. That's, that's something I'm sure they appreciated. Secondly, notice the adverb used to describe Andrew's actions. He first found his brother Simon. If they had stayed the rest of the day with Jesus, this means that the first thing that Andrew did the next day was to find his brother. This is something that we should also be encouraged to do. Upon being introduced to Jesus and experiencing his presence, we should find those closest to us and take them to him. Simon approached Jesus and is identified. You are Simon, the son of John. And he immediately gives him a new name. You shall be called Cephas which means Peter. This is the start of a radical and rambunctious relationship. Peter and Jesus become very close, and Peter is highlighted several times throughout this Gospel of John. This is a name to remember and to look out for as we move through the chapters. Let's continue with the next verse. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip, And said to him, Follow me. Now, Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him, of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, come and see. Again, notice this excitement that caused people to bring their friends and family to Jesus. We meet this man named Philip, who the Lord calls to follow him, and then we see Philip go get his friend Nathaniel. Now, the conversation between Philip and Nathaniel gives us insight as to who they thought Jesus was. We have found him, of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael, most likely aware that there aren't any prophecies about the Messiah coming out of Nazareth, and he was undoubtedly aware of Nazareth's Nazareth's (laughs) regional reputation. So he asked, can any good come out of Nazareth? And rather than justifying his statement, Philip simply says, come and see. 
Just look for yourself. This is something that we should genuinely take to heart. In a culture of independence and individuality, we often like to defend our thoughts. If someone doesn't seem to see our point of view or or even agree with what we have to say, we are typically ready and prepared to give a defense. Our purpose could be to either convince them or to discredit them. We are rather insecure with our thoughts, which is why the States puts such a premium on entertainment, because it serves as a great distraction. But when it comes to Jesus Christ, we are not trying to debate people towards Jesus. There are moments when we'll have to explain why we believe what we believe, but when we're trying to bring people to the Lord, we just need to introduce him. Just come and see. See for yourself. Nathaniel went to meet Jesus, and Jesus saw Nathaniel coming toward him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you, you are the Son of God. You are the king of Israel. Jesus answered him, Because I have said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Now, Now, this piece right here, this collection of verses, this passage, this is an incredibly designed paragraph packed full of hyperlinks. I think I I first heard Tim Mackey use that term. I'm going to borrow it. I think I've used it once before, but I'm going to borrow it again. Like a hyperlink on the Internet, something like on a blog post or something, a hyperlink serves as immediate content, but if you click on it, it takes you to another place. So the first statement that makes me go, hmm, a little bit, is when Jesus first sees Nathanael. Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. This makes me think of Jacob from the Old Testament. You see, Jacob's name was a play on words in Hebrew, like someone being a heel grabber and also saying they're a trickster. In English, we would say that Jacob's name means something like deceiver. Later, Jacob was renamed to Israel, which was the name that stuck for his children, the children of Israel, the people of Israel. Israel became the national identity. So when Jesus says, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit, it's very clearly a reference to Jacob. Now, remember, John is writing a narrative. 
meaning he's taking different moments from Jesus' life and he's using them to craft a, a detailed and layered reason for why people should believe in Jesus. He's using what he's good at, the practices of ancient Hebrew literature. And with the influence of the Holy Spirit, he's crafting a layered story. So let's take a look at some of these layers. <laughs> As a note, I'm still finding them. <laughs> I'm still learning to see them and, and put them together. But here's what I've seen so far. For the immediate story, Jesus calls Nathanael a true Israelite. If you then, hypothetically, click on the hyperlink, you see the story of Jacob. Jacob was a man of drive and passion. This was the kind of man who deceived his brother and his own father, yet he revered the God of his fathers. He once had a dream about heaven being opened and angels ascending and descending from it. He struggled with the Lord in a wrestling match, only to ask for a blessing. He set up pillars and altars to the Lord wherever he went. He was a worshiper. Jacob worshiped the Lord. With this loaded statement in John, the author positions Jesus to say, Nathaniel, you are a true Israelite. You are a true worshiper. You love the Lord. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Remember, Nathanael is skeptical. What good could come out of Nazareth? So Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Wow, whatever Jesus had just said, had meaning enough to cause Nathanael to confess him as Messiah. That is not a small confession. What did Jesus say to him? Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Now, in the Old Testament, the fig tree has an incredible amount of symbology. The first time that we see the word in the Bible is when Adam and Eve try to cover their nakedness with fig leaves. And after that, fig trees are all over the Bible, and often they're used to represent good things. In the Synoptic Gospels, Jesus cursed a fig tree right after he causes a ruckus in the temple because the fig tree, as he said, didn't bear any fruit. That's a, that's a lesson full of symbology. I, uh, actually, I, I personally find it very interesting that here in the Gospel of John, that story is not included. However, we do have this mention of a fig tree, and Jesus does make a traumatic appearance at the temple in John chapter 2, no, not too far from this. I haven't finished looking into it to see if there's you know, any merit to that, but it's something interesting to think about. Now, for this passage... What's the importance of being seen under a fig tree? I believe it means that Jesus saw the very heart, the very person of Nathaniel, and he recognized his internal makeup. You are a true Israelite, a true worshiper. I saw you under the fig tree. 
the full truth of whatever Jesus meant by this was felt by Nathaniel because he responded with a righteous confession that would have been sacrilegious to make half-heartedly. You are the Messiah. Jesus recognized and revealed Nathaniel's character similar to how Jesus knew you are Peter, the son of John. But here, Jesus even continued. Jesus answered him, Because I have said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. This is another reference to Jacob. But the key difference is that Jacob saw this at a place. He named it Bethel, a holy place. But Jesus says that this will be on a person, the Son of Man. (laughs) Holy smokes, what a can of worms. Okay. Uh, Simply put, Son of Man is a title that comes from the book of Daniel. (laughs) That, That should be enough for now. So, so what does this all mean? What, what's being communicated? Obviously, something is happening. John referred to it in his prologue. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Or another way that you could say it, quite literally, is he tabernacled among us. The tabernacle was a place that traveled. <laughs> it, it was a tent. It was the precursor to the temple of God. What John is saying is that God, wrapped up in human flesh, has come to live with a purpose among his people. So check this out. Listen to all these titles that are given to Jesus just in these verses. Lamb of God, Son of God, Son of Man, Messiah, Rabbi, King of Israel, Jesus of Nazareth, from the house of Joseph. If you counted those, there happens to be seven. And all these titles put together demonstrate the personhood of Jesus. Fully God, fully man, teacher, ruler, savior. He has come to open heaven and bring it to earth. He is bringing the kingdom of God and inaugurating citizens of heaven. Also, this is the fourth day. Technically, the fifth, but the fourth day as John outlines it, which corresponds to the fourth day of creation, where light is set up in the expanse of the heavens and day is separated from the night. Remember what John said in the prologue? Something about those who receive the light and those who prefer the darkness. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world. The world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, He gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood nor of the will of the flesh nor of the will of man 
shepherd of God. Jesus really asked a a loaded question, didn't he? What are you seeking? By following Jesus, what do you hope to find? Are you prepared to be seen? Are you prepared for your sins to be illuminated? That's why people prefer the dark. They look better that way. But there is no darkness in Christ. He is the light, the true light, who gives light to everyone. John loves that metaphor. We'll see it throughout his book. This is the introduction of John. It is a meticulously crafted work of art. Thank you for listening to Pickled Parables. If you enjoyed this message, please rate us, subscribe, and share with your friends. If you're interested in more things like this, check out our secondary podcast called My Dusty Bible. To stay up to date with all things parable, follow us on Instagram at parable underscore ministries and visit our website at parableministries.com. Parable is a volunteer organization, and we would deeply appreciate your prayers. Thank you for joining us today. We'll catch you later.